Hey dudes, this is The Big Game. I'm your host, Justin Hargett. Today's podcast is a special one for me. I grew up just outside the city of Pittsburgh in a small, rapidly declining, decaying steel town called Steubenville. Lies in the Ohio River Valley, about a 45-minute drive from the city. And I also spent most of my adult life in the city of New York. That is until very recently. So I'm going to change things up just for this week's episode. Uh, there's no guest, no co-host tonight. And it's just me. I'm going to talk about the Pittsburgh Pirates' three-game sweep of the New York Mets. I hope you'll stick around and enjoy this little autobiographical essay. To set things up, the Pirates came into the series with the third-best record in baseball, trailing only the Kansas City Royals, as well as their NL Central rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals. It's a far cry, however, from the Pittsburgh Pirates teams of my youth. It's a franchise that had won five World Series and nine National League pennants before I was even born. I'd never known a winning Pirates team. That's not really shocking if you think about the facts, but I just turned seven in 1992 when Barry Bonds led the Bucks to the NLCS against the Braves. It was their second appearance in that series in two years, both against the Atlanta Braves, both of which they would lose. Barry Bonds would later go on to fame and infamy playing for the San Francisco Giants. Many people probably remember him much more as a Giant than as a Pirate. In fact, one of my treasured possessions, in addition to my signed Nolan Ryan baseball, is a J. Bell signed bat. Yes, J. Bell. He was a thing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. But other than that bat, I have no memories of watching that team on TV, and certainly not at Three Rivers Stadium. It'd be 21 years before the Pirates had a winning record again. And honestly, it wasn't that it wasn't that surprising. When you live in a region that is dominated by pro football, college football, high school football, baseball kind of takes a back seat, especially if your local team loses year after year after year. So in a town where the Steelers and the Penguins are constantly fighting for and winning championships in their respective sports, why would anyone pay attention to a team whose owners wouldn't spend, whose management couldn't manage, and whose players flat out couldn't play? What was the point of watching the Pirates? Now, it's one thing to blow up your team and lose for a few years while you try to rebuild. It's worked in Oklahoma. Hell, I still watch the Knicks, and I'm not quite convinced that they're doing it either, but 20 straight seasons of losing baseball, it's a tough pill to swallow. Now, you know, there were the occasional bright spots. Jason Bay had a rookie of the year season in 2004. Jason Kendall, catcher, played for the Pirates for eight seasons. Hard-hitting, three-time All-Star, was basically the only thing carrying that team while he was still on it. But that was about it. That and the new stadium they got in the early 2000s, which it's definitely the best place to see a game in the country. 
So then in 2006, I left the Midwest. I moved to New York for an internship at a publishing company. Baseball at that point was the only sport I cared about. I know it's a far cry from the general interest fan and podcaster that I've become now. But there I was living in the biggest city in the United States. with No friends, no acquaintances. In fact, I was surviving on a $75 a week stipend from the company I was working for, along with savings and help from my lovely family. So I clung to the winning team that I found in Queens with absolutely everything that I had. I know for a fact that I went to at least seven games that summer, if not more, and I watched so many more than that from my dumpy shared dorm room in Brooklyn Heights. And there's no club that I know as intimately as I know those 2006 Mets. And hopefully I never will need to know a team that well ever again. I've forgotten so many of the lineups from some of my favorite squads. You know, Michael Jordan's Bulls, 2004 Red Sox, the 2013 Supporters Shield winning New York Red Bulls. I remember moments, great plays, great games, but I've been able to kind of let the rest fade, store it on Wikipedia so that I can save space for some other stuff in my head. Yet I still think about the 2006 Mets quite often. Jose Reyes led off. He always got on base. He'd always steal a base. Paul Aduca would try to get him over. David Wright or Carlos Beltran or Carlos Delgado would bring him home and get the RBI. Pedro Martinez and Tom Glavin anchored the pitching staff. They're veteran savvy and craftiness. I even remember the name Steve Traskell for no reason other than the fact that he was the pitcher who helped clinch the division series over the Dodgers. Then there was Billy Wagner, closer. Gave me a heart attack every single time he came onto the field. Jose Valentin's mustache. Julio Franco, who at the time was the oldest player to ever hit a home run. There's Lastings Millage, who was a highly regarded prospect, but ultimately just unfulfilled potential. There was Andy Chavez's catch, El Duque's 67-mile-per-hour EFIS pitch, and then the inconsistent eventual heartbreak of Oliver Perez, John Main, and Mike Pelfrey, pitchers who excelled at times, won big games, but ultimately were not good enough to be consistent starters in the majors. There's so many names, too many names, honestly, and memories from that team and that season that are burned into my brain. And yet there are none that are more powerful than the final out of the season. It was late October, October 19th to be exact. The Mets were down 3-1, to one, Game 7 of the National League Championship Series against the dreaded St. Louis Cardinals. Bases were loaded, two outs. Carlos Beltran was at bat, and I was back in Ohio on a couch rescued from the 70s, finishing my degree and watching the team that I had just fallen in love with over the summer, 548 miles away from Shea Stadium. Few moments as a fan have ever been as deflating as that one, 
and I'm sure you have an experience of your own that rivals it, but watching Adam Wainwright pull the string on a crippling curveball, seeing Carlos Beltran there, the hero of the Mets, with his bat still on his shoulder, get called out looking to end the season, a season that I had invested time and money and effort into following. It's heartbreaking. And it hurts even more now knowing the wasted potential of that team and those players. 2007, I moved to New York by myself, quickly resumed my affair with the New York Metropolitans. I moved to the city in June amidst a slump, but fortunately it was a down year for the NL East. Phillies were garbage, still are. The Braves weren't the Braves of the 90s. The Nationals were shaking off their Expo heritage, and the Florida Marlins were, well, they played in Florida. So the Mets never relinquished their hold on first place that season, and it was fun to watch. Reyes would always score. The big bats would continue to bring him home. I went to work. I came home, and I watched the Mets. In August and September 2007, I clung to that routine in order to cope with a long-distance relationship. I went to work, I came home to an empty apartment, and I watched the Mets rinse and repeat. But the joy of winning, the joy of being a Mets fan, well, I guess that's kind of oxymoronic now that I think about it, but it wasn't meant to be in 2007. Tom Glavin, who's a Mets hero until his final day on the mound, gave up seven runs to the Florida Marlins to complete one of the worst collapses in baseball. I don't remember why exactly, but I was on the Upper West Side. I had something to do that morning, and I needed to find a bar to watch the game because the Mets had already lost 13 out of their last 16 games and were tied with the Phillies for first place in the division. And if they just won this game, they would have forced a playoff I'd had plans to buy an Amtrak ticket, take it down to Philly, figure out their own subway system down there, and go see the the one-game playoff with the Phils. But instead, Glavin embarrassed on the mound in the first inning. I was stuck in an empty pub by myself, watching the team that I love lose again. It hurt less than 2006, though. And I still felt... There must be some hope for this team, for this squad, these great baseball players. And then 2008 ended exactly the same way. Another jump out into first place and a collapse at the end of the season. So despite owning too many hats, too many shirts, too many jerseys, going to dozens of games every season at Shea Stadium, watching them build City Field, mourning the loss and the destruction, the teardown of Shea Stadium, catching the nightly broadcast from the SNY booth, one of the best in the business, and even traveling to Port St. Lucie every year for spring training. It never got any better being a Mets fan, and that's what I learned, is that being a Mets fan is to put up with some bullshit year after year after year. 2009, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, all mostly forgettable seasons. And sure, there are nice moments. Johan Santana's no-hitter, first in Mets history. 
I'll never forget that night. Jose Reyes' batting title season. Ike Davis's rise and fall, and the rise and fall of so many other potential Mets greats. Francisco fucking Rodriguez. But that wasn't enough. They weren't winning. They weren't playoffs. It's hard to spend three to four hours every night watching baseball team if they don't start winning. You start to cut back here and there. Next thing you know, you're only going to half as many games. You're not going to spring training. Maybe you listen to the first three innings on the radio, and then you get back to whatever else it was you were doing. The Mets had become the Pirates. Very similar experience. Seeing a team lose year in and year out, their owners unwilling to pay. A once great franchise crippled by players that couldn't play the game of baseball. So fast forward, it's 2015. It's now. It's this weekend, to be exact. And I don't live in New York anymore. I don't live in the suburbs of Pittsburgh either. Yet the Mets are in first place in the National League East. And the Pirates are one of the top three teams in baseball. When I started this podcast, I did so with the intent to cover the Super Bowl, playoffs, the Olympics, the X Games, kind of anything that would make the water cooler throughout the year, week in and week out. And when I started this podcast, I never would have thought I'd be able to talk about the Mets with any real sense of purpose or stakes, at least this season for sure. And I won't lie, I was planning to cover them anyway, and I was planning to cover the Pirates anyway, even if they didn't have good seasons, because these are my teams. These are the teams I want to talk about, and I was going to find some excuse to talk about them, regardless of whether or not it was actually a big game. So I knew I'd talk about them, but I never really thought the Mets, especially, would be in a big game this season. Even a month ago, while I was preparing for an episode of the podcast by watching the Houston Astros and the Anaheim Angels, news dropped on air. This was, this was on the trade deadline. News dropped that Carlos Gomez, who was a promising former prospect for the Mets and was dealt to the Minnesota Twins for Johan Santana several years back, turned out he was headed back to the Mets in a big trade. Their first really big monumental trade in a number of years that seemed like they realized they had a chance this season. They were only a few games behind the Nationals, and they're led by three incredible pitchers right now, Matt Harvey, Jacob deGrom, who we talked about in the MLB All-Star game, and Noah Syndergaard. So it felt like the Mets were finally trying to make a move to compete and to make it to the playoffs. They're starting to rekindle my faith in the fact that the owners cared even a little bit about the team that they put out there every night. So I woke up excited the next morning, only to find out that the Mets had fucking Metsed it up again. The deal for Carlos Gomez had fallen through. Wilmer Flores, who was the infielder for the Mets that was supposed to be headed to Milwaukee in the deal, learned about the trade while he was still playing on the field. I think the rumor is that he heard it from some fans that had been following along Twitter and shouted out to him the news. And this is a kid that, you know, had been with this organization since he was 16 years old. His eyes welling up, red with tears. And then he's just supposed to go back out the next night like nothing happened. Like he's just 
a piece of stock traded between corporations. It's pretty incredible. And then something weird happened. Mets, within spitting distance of the Nationals, finally got some momentum. Yeah, the trade fell through, but they turned around and they got Juan Uribe and Jonas Cespedes, two big bats, that added some real power to the lineup. And finally, Lucas Duda, first baseman, started hitting like the beast we all hoped he'd been years ago. And then they swept the Nationals. And they were in first place, all by themselves in the NL East. But I'm not there to see it, and it feels weird. I haven't paid for the MLB all-access package. I don't have the MLB at bat, so I can't watch or listen to the games, to the Mets games or to the Pirates games, for that matter. The two teams of my life, two teams I felt I'd never have to pit against each other because of their various stupidities, they are suddenly remarkably two of the best teams in baseball, and I'm not really closely following either of them just because of proximity, distance, cable rights, TV producers. So it's exciting that TBS picked the Pirates' Sunday finale against the Mets at City Field this past weekend as their Sunday baseball game. The Pirates came into the series, and they took games one and two Friday night and Saturday night, although they needed extra innings to get those wins. And then the Mets put out their ace, Matt Harvey, on Sunday in order to prevent embarrassment, to prevent getting swept at home from one of their National League rivals. Harvey is 11-7 and seven this season. He has a 2.6 ERA. The Mets have truly one of the best pitching staffs, starting pitching staffs in the majors right now. So Harvey's going up against Jeff Locke, who's also having a pretty good season for the Bucks himself. So when I started this podcast, I imagined that I would have to set some of my fan biases aside, try as I might to be a neutral observer for the most part, which I think fairly often I achieve. Not all the time, but, you know, I think enough. And so I think that any fan, or at least the kind of fan that I am, and anyone's the kind of fan like I am, seems to start to root for somebody eventually, whether, you know, it's at the beginning of the game, before it even starts, you know who you want to win, or maybe it's as the game progresses and you've bought into the storyline or the narrative of the underdog or whoever, one specific player maybe that you want to see do well. Maybe it's just the final moments and you start feeling like, ah, they really wanted that, I really wanted the home team to win this one. But and I think naturally we always pull for the Cinderella, although sometimes it's the team that's closest to us in location or in heart, the one that your father rooted for, or the one that you went to go see when you were in college or some other aspect of your life. So I wasn't sure which way I'd lean here in this matchup of the two teams that mean the most to me in, in baseball. And then a few innings later, I kind of started to see where the line was drawn. Pedro Alvarez, first baseman for the Pirates, awesome fucking beard, smashed a home run off of Matt Harvey in the top of the second, and I winced. Half an inning later, catcher for the Mets, Travis Darnot, another promising prospect who's finally filling up to his potential, tied it up with a solo home run of his own. I cheered. So I could tell then that's, that's the way it was going to go, at least for that game anyway. Maybe it 
helped that the Pirates had already won two, and I felt like the Mets really deserved one. But So while I hope that the Pirates can storm back and take the top spot from the fucking St. Louis Cardinals in the Central Division, right now, in this moment, in this game, I needed the team that I'd spent most of the last decade of my life rooting for to pull it together and win this big game. I need them to win it for me, for Matt Harvey, for Shea Stadium, for 2006, for Jose and Carlos and Carlos, for Willie Randolph, Johan Santana, Billy fucking Wagner, for all the hours and bars on couches and stadiums, on the road, on the radio, for any time I took time out of my day to be away from somebody I love to watch a Mets game or to be with somebody I love and watch the Mets game. I needed them to win this one for me. It's top of the seventh inning. Matt Harvey's left the game, replaced by a name that I know too well, a name that I'm beginning to dread more and more that I see it, Mr. Bobby Parnell, a man who should have been the closer of the future, but for injuries and malpractice, never quite materialized. He led off the inning with a walk. Then there was a botched double play at second base between Ruben Tejada, Daniel Murphy. Then there's a hit, a couple of hits, passed ball. And in the blink of an eye, it's 5-1, to one and the game's pretty much over. Pirates have it in the bag. Alvarez and Aramis Ramirez, who is uh, back in his second stint as a Pirate, had great games. I think Aramis Ramirez was 4 for 4 in this one. The Pirates relief staff, particularly Antonio Bastardo, completed the sweep. They were really top-notch. I think they had won, I think it's 14 wins in a row for one of their relievers, which is a pretty crazy stat. Um, and, you know, despite the fact it was a good duel for six innings, and I was glad that I woke up early enough on a Sunday to catch it at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And it was still good to see the better team win, the team with more experience. Although it was disappointing that the Mets lost it in the most keystone cops way possible. And they're still in first place. The Pirates will continue to chase down the Cardinals. The Mets will look to avoid collapsing their first place NL lead again. And it's looking good for both teams this season. And yet, I live in L.A. now, Los Angeles. And I have to follow both of them from afar. Watch them on national TV. Hope to God that ESPN doesn't have a Yankees or Red Sox game lined up. Maybe I can catch them at Dodger Stadium. Because Lord knows why AT&T doesn't carry the fucking Dodgers on my cable plan. And, and that's it. I mean, I watch... I watch almost everything on TV. Everything I podcast about is something that I've watched on TV or I'm streaming on an app or a laptop because I'm a modern fan and I'm a cheap fan. I consume everything safely from a distance. And if I'm lucky, I can make a trip and I can go see a game or, you know, I can get some some cheap seats. But it's nuts when I can watch... Swansea City or Crystal Palace play week in and week out in the Premier League 
or even Borussia Dortmund or Barcelona further east in Europe. They're on all hours of the day, and it's totally free. I just need an extended cable package, but, you know, it's still hard to catch the Mets and the Pirates on unless you're paying for the all-access app. But there's certainly an emptiness there, an absence, knowing that I can't just hop on the subway and spend an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes or, God forbid, two hours on the subway trying to get from wherever I was in Brooklyn to Queens to see the Mets and feel the rekindled atmosphere that they have obviously had for the last month. Even if it's just for one summer afternoon and watch the rest of them on TV, it's, there's certainly a, a little bit of pain there not being, able, not being able to share in that collective experience. So the Mets are in first place. The Pirates, one of the best teams in baseball. This series certainly showed the best of the Pirates, the strengths of the Mets, as well as their weaknesses. But here's to hoping that they both make the playoffs and we'll be able to give each of these teams the proper full treatment on a future episode of the Big Game Podcast. All right, everybody, thanks for listening to the Big Game. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave a review if you like what you hear. Check out our website, biggamepod.com, and listen to all of our past episodes about baseball, soccer, football, basketball, whatever you want, and drop me a line on Twitter at BigGamePod. So get out there, watch some sports, play some sports, live your life, drink some beer, have a good time, and we'll see you next week here on The Big Game. <laughs>